Hello and welcome back to another monthly Holistic Healers episode. Thank you to everyone for listening today, tuning in, sharing your wonderful comments with me, suggestions of people and topics you all want to hear about. I love getting those. Um, So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you again for being here. This is a really important topic for me at least, but I think it has some applicability even if you're not interested in the topic necessarily or don't know much about it. I think there's a lot um, about it that I think will be helpful to listen to. So thank you all for, again, being here today. Let's get into it. Um, So for those who may know me already and are listening, hello. And for those who have uh, maybe heard me briefly share on the show in the past to some extent. Um, I am getting a doctorate in clinical psychology, but I didn't go into clinical psychology um, and getting my doctorate for holistics and alternative medicine and healing. Um, That's just, this is actually kind of like a not a new topic to me, but a newer idea, um, a newer lens that I've um, gathered since working with clients. But it really wasn't my driving force, um, the catalyst, I guess you would say, to being interested in psychology. I think it goes a lot farther back and it actually started with forensics. Um, And that's kind of why I'm getting my doctorate. And If you're not entirely sure what forensics means, especially in the context of psychology, forensics in general just means law. And forensic psychology together essentially is this integration between law and psychology and how both of them impact each other. And, you know, this could be, I can create a whole other episode kind of explaining this, but, you know, there's clinical work, you could do rehabilitation, working with inmates and, you know, inpatient settings, uh, correctional facilities, hospitals, jails, prisons. Um, There's also the outpatient route I used to do, which you can work at a private practice, uh, community, like mental health uh, facility or organization. Uh, For me personally, I was working with inmates who were on probation. It could also be people on parole. And I was offering mental health services and case management. But yeah, mental health services as a counselor. And the other route besides clinical work you can do is assessment work. And we'll kind of be diving into talking about that today. But I really wanted to give you all an overview of not only, you know, my background in forensics, why I was so interested in it, why I wanted to get my doctor in it. And as I reference, as we both mentioned, both the clinical and the assessment side, you'll hear about it. And I wanted, you know, you all to be familiar. Um, But the assessment piece is mainly doing evaluations, uh, you know, outside of forensics. This could be for any diagnosis, essentially like ADHD, uh, autism, kind of you name it. For forensic specific assessments, which is what this guest does, um, among other things, of course. But um, forensic assessments could be either for criminal or civil cases. So for criminal cases, this could be competency to stand trial. This could be not guilty by reason of insanity, please. 
for civil more esque, I guess, um, assessments. This could be fitness for duty for law enforcement, child custody, and you know the list just kind of goes on. Um, and the reason why I'm getting my doctorate is because not only do I want to work with clients uh, potentially for uh, or with inmates, but you know mainly doing this as my private practice for holistic healing as my private practice, but. On the side, or my main job I want to do is testifying in court as a forensic psychologist, giving my opinions, sharing information about an evaluation or an assessment I've done. So a lot about me. So let's get into the guest who is on the show today. I I will tell her this. Um, I'm starstruck that she's even wanting to be here. I'm so excited for her to be here. She is a licensed clinical psychologist. She's also a licensed mental health counselor. So she specializes in psychodiagnostic assessments, forensic assessments, like I was talking about, dual diagnosis, meaning mental health and substance use. She also has experience and expertise with serious and persistent mental illness, depression, anxiety, personality disorders, and substance abuse treatment. Um, she also has her master's degree from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. So if you are familiar with that big school, um, very famous for forensic psych, she has her master's there. She also has her doctorate in clinical psychology with a forensic emphasis. And you know, we'll talk a lot about her uh, training, but it's extensive. It's very much extensive. Um, it includes inpatient stuff, outpatient settings, um, forensic practices, uh, private forensic practices, APA accredited pre-doc internships, um, just kind of everything you could think of that you think would be helpful for working with criminals, um, offenders, inmates, you know, what whatever you want to uh say that they are um her clinical experience it's over 20 years working with mentally ill again duly diagnosed adults inpatient and outpatient in correctional facilities substance abuse rehabilitation centers outpatient clinics psychiatric hospitals private practice um in new york new jersey california florida she was also a clinical director which i think is an amazing um experience i bet for a maximum security correctional facility. And, you know, ultimately, I guess the last thing to share about her before I introduce her, you know, her ultimate goal as a psychologist, kind of regardless of the population, again, you know, if you're interested in forensics like I am, um, that's probably why you're listening. But even if you're not and you just want to kind of hear about her. Um, so regardless of the population, you know, she believes that accurate diagnosis is key and identifying, you know, patient strengths, um, areas of growth is essential in order to better individualize treatment needs and goals for the individual. And I think that's really the aim for any psychologist. I mean, if you know anything about the code of ethics, right, there's do no harm for, I think, every healthcare professional. So um, she has an extensive amount of uh, training and clinical experience. And I'm um, so excited, so honored uh, to have her on the show. Uh, I first heard about her I don't know if, you know, if you're listening to this because you're interested in forensic uh, forensic psychology, 
I first heard of her through the Forensic Psychologist podcast, and um, I can tag that podcast as well. She's friends with the host, but what a what an amazing additional podcast if you need another one to listen to. But yeah, so without further ado, I know that was a long intro, but hopefully it gives you some context before we jump in. Um, I would like to welcome the esteemed uh, Dr. Lena Haji to the Holistic Healers podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I am ecstatic to be here and talk about all things psych. I yes. Um, why don't you, I, I told you this before you got on, I'm so excited for you to be here. I'm a little starstruck. Um, I love your work. Um, but why don't you share a little bit about yourself, um, with the audience? Okay. Well, thank you for, for that introduction. <laughs> and I'm very humbled. So thank you for that. Um, let's see, I'm a clinical and forensic psychologist, uh, practicing in Miami. I'm also a licensed mental health counselor. Some people don't know that, but I was in LMHC before I got my doctorate. Um, I am, so I basically started working in mental health about 20 something years ago. I won't date myself, but I started working in prisons at a very young age, um, in New York and New Jersey. And, um, I worked at the master's level for a, a while, which was really great because I feel like before I got into my doctoral program, I already had a, a whole lot of experience. I had already worked in prisons for quite a while, rehabs, mental health clinics, outpatient community. Um, my parents worked at the United Nations and my sister is a criminal defense attorney. So growing up, it was kind of drilled into our head. Like if you don't have a career that helps other people, your life is not worth living. Really? And like, I don't think I could have become like a Wall Street financial analyst because my parents would have been like, what are you doing? Not saying there's anything wrong with Wall Street financial analysts, but you know, it was very ingrained. Like you have to help underserved populations. You have to help underserved populations. Somehow my sister ended up being a criminal defense attorney and I ended up being a forensic psychologist. So I don't know that they really were bent on us working with criminals, but that's how it happened. Um, so yeah. And, um, Let's see what else. My mom is French from France. My dad is Indian from Tanzania. I was born in Switzerland, raised in New York, and now I live in Miami. And so I like that I have this crazy international background because I think it helps me connect with people a lot. And um, that's that's me in a nutshell. I don't whatever else questions yeah. you want to know. I'm ready to answer. Yeah. No. Thank you for that. I think that's great too. Um, especially when you have that just diverse background and you've also been in the field for so long. I think that's so important for forensics in general. I agree. I think working at the bachelor's level and then the master's level and at the doctoral level, it was, it all prepared me for where I am today. You know, I see a lot of people, they try to skip right into private practice without a lot of work experience. I don't suggest that. I understand it's like a goal, but I think working in so many organizations in different settings really helped me to be able to do the work that I do today. Yeah, that's actually really good to know, because as I have shared on the podcast before I shared with you, I'm done with just my first year. So it's good to hear from people with a lot of clinical experience. You're like, don't just jump into private practice, even though you have a lot of debt, like just do it, just work in multiple different areas. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the beautiful thing about a doctorate is you get the practicum experience, the internship, the pre-doc, the post-doc. So by the time you're graduating, you'll already have, you know, quite a bit of clinical experience. So that's what I really like about doctoral programs, because you have to get hands-on experience. 
Yeah. Where were your, where were your practicum site or what was your internship or your postdoc? So I did a master's at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. I worked at a prison that used to be in Harlem in New York. Um, that was my externship site there. I think I only had one practicum. And then I did my my second master's. It was a master's on the way to the doctorate in clinical psychology and doctorate. I did most of my practicums in Miami, but I also, I took a really long time to get my doctorate because I worked three part-time jobs. Mm-hmm. I, for some reason, did not get... Um, accepted for grad plus loans because I had really horrible credit. (laughs) So like I was seeing my cohort pass me by and go on to pre-doc and I was like really taking my time. And it ended up being a good thing because I got to get more experience and work in the Florida prisons, which are completely different from prisons in the Northeast. Um, So I did my practicums. I had a mentor that had his own forensic psychology practice. So I did a lot of work there. I had another mentor who had her own forensic psychology practice, some prison work. I worked in a couple of substance abuse rehabs, community mental health. So I had a little bit of, a little bit of everything. Yeah. It was really good. Yeah. That's pretty diverse too. Like that's, that's really impressive. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like being broke sucks when you're in your doctoral program. But the good news is you get to work all over the place. So I had like a mishmash of like two days here at the prison, two days here at the other prison, one afternoon running groups at the rehab, um, practicum on Saturdays, running sex offender groups, doing, you know, private, like I had to, you know, just hustle all over the place, which ended up making my CV and my clinical experience super rich, even though at the time it's like, oh my God, I just want to sleep. But it ended up being really helpful. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in that uh, mindset right now, too. I'm like really trying to expand my CV, but it's also like I need to practice stress management. I need to go to bed on time, but I just don't think that's necessarily possible when you're in grad school in general. No, I agree. Grad school demands a lot of sacrifice and you don't see it at the I mean, it, I have no regrets for me every degree I got was totally worth it. But at the time it's like, how am I supposed to do this? They're not enough hours in the day and I'm broke. (laughs) Great. (laughs) You're not alone. That's, that's definitely reassuring. So thank you for that. (laughs) That's better. I promise. Okay. (laughs) What was your (laughs) dissertation on? If you don't mind me asking, if you remember. Oh, (laughs) I don't mind you asking at all. So my dissertation was a literature review, but it compared um, state-run prisons in New York to private-run prisons in Florida. Mm-hmm. So I really took a dig at Florida prisons. So I almost felt like a hypocrite because I wrote the dissertation, went off to California to do pre-doc and post-doc, did not want to stay in California, knew that I wanted to come back from the on the East Coast. And then I started working in the Florida prison system again, <laughs> because what else are you supposed to do as a newly graduated forensic psychologist? So I ripped the Florida prison system to shreds in my dissertation and talked about how like the privatized is horrible and it's subpar care and they don't care about the inmates and it's only profit driven. And then I went back to work in them. So that was interesting. Um, So yeah, I barely, I basically compared state run prisons in in New York and some in California um, to private run prisons and how horrible the care is in private run prisons because they're cutting corners all over the place to put the money in their pocket instead of putting it towards the patients. Um, and it continues today. And I don't even know how it's legal. I mean, I know how it's legal. People are greedy, but that was my dissertation. Do you think that's just in Florida or do you think that's like nationwide? Do you know? I mean, there, there are, there are 
private prisons all over the place. Um, the more treatment oriented and progressive states like New York, California tend to have much less private prisons, if any at all. I'm not sure if California has any more at all, maybe some jails. Um, so yeah, it's a nationwide, no matter where you have a private prison, where the, where the, the goal is to make money, you're going to have subpar care. Like you can't have both because if you're trying to make a profit, you're not caring about people and you're just barely meeting federal guidelines. Um, so the example I give people is like, let's say, you know, the federal, federal government requires that inmates get a certain amount of protein in their meal, certain amount of veggies, certain amount of calcium, whatever. And so a, a public prison or a state run prison will give maybe some chicken, some broccoli, some mashed potatoes, and that'll be like, I don't know, 14 cents per inmate per meal. So they're hitting all those guidelines and the inmates are getting a, a decent meal. A private run prison will like substitute the potatoes for like, you know, the box ones, they'll substitute the chicken for spam, they'll substitute the broccoli, you know what I mean? Like they'll substitute the broccoli for like pieces of lettuce. And so they're still meeting those federal guidelines because yeah. there's protein, there's veggies, but the meal costs six cents. So where does the rest of that money go? It goes in their pocket. Mm. So if you take that example and you apply it to medical health, to mental health, where they're just barely meeting the guidelines, but not in a way that's conducive to the inmates living their best life. Um, that's that's how private prisons run. Oh and it's gosh. egregious. I would have just been so furious doing the dissertation. I would have been pissed. <laughs> I was furious during the dissertation, but I was more furious when I was working in the prisons because it was oh, like, it yeah. doesn't have to be this way. And I had worked in prisons in New Jersey, New York, California, and Florida. So I've seen I've worked in well-run prisons. I've worked in prisons where the inmates get actual treatment and actual care and actual rehabilitation. So to come back to Florida and be like, oh my God, I forgot how bad it is here is a shock to the system. I was angry at work every day. Yeah. Did you analyze at all? I don't know how far the dissertation went into this, but did you look at recidivism rates at all? Like if they were getting better health and like the nutritional value you're talking about, if they don't reoffend? Yeah. So actually that was, I, sh I should have pointed that out. The actual, the whole dissertation was based on recidivism rates of duly diagnosed um, inmates. And when I say duly diagnosed, they were, you know, uh, the old axis one and axis two. So a psychiatric disorder and a substance use disorder. And the results were insane. Like in New York, the recidivism rate was for the first three years of getting out of prison was something like 36%. Whereas in Florida, it was something like 72%. Are you yeah, serious? It was, yeah, it was, no, it was crazy. It was like, when I was reading about it, I was like, and it's hard to quantify because the, the research is so different. And is it three years and five years? Is it a violent crime? Is it a probation violation? So it was hard to kind of tease out all of that data. But the bottom line was privatized prisons had a horrible recidivism rate. Wow, what an interesting yeah. dissertation. That's cool though, but it sucks that it's happening. I hope it's, I, I imagine it's still happening, but hopefully, you know, states are working on that. Hope hope. <laughs> I don't don't get me started on Florida, even though I live here. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we, uh, we also talked about this coming, you coming on the show, but um, not only, you know, you just have tons of clinical experience, but I'm really interested in talking about just like 
the myths you've experienced with this population, like how society views inmates and offenders. But before all of that, because I know I want to just head at that or go to that point later in the conversation, I mainly just want to ask about what's your experience like as a forensic evaluator or a you know forensic psychologist doing clinical work? Um, so I, I really believe clinical psychology is the foundation to being a forensic psychologist. And I think it's awesome that your doctorate program is clinically focused because I don't think you can do forensic work without a clinical foundation. You can't tell if somebody's malingering if you don't know what they're malingering, right? You can't tell if somebody's lying about psychosis if you have never seen true psychosis or learned about true psychosis, you know what I mean? So a lot of people want to jump right into forensics because it's exciting and it's it's criminal and it's like all over the TV. But if you don't have a good clinical foundation, you're not going to be a good forensic psychologist. So I put that out there because my program was a doctorate in clinical psychology with a forensic emphasis, which was kind of great because I got that good clinical foundation. Um, so what it's like, I opened my private practice in August, 2020, because I was prisoned out, um, COVID hit, and they weren't even giving us masks or hand sanitizer or paper towels in the bathroom. And it was like, people were dying left and right. And we didn't know what it was. And I was like, I got to get out of here. And I was terrified because it's like, how do you just start a private practice? They don't teach you that in grad school. Um, and then I also thought, like, I don't want to abandon my inmates, you know, even though it's so stressful and you're like kind of walking up a hill, pushing a boulder when you're working in private private prisons, you feel like you almost feel a little bit like an egomaniac. Like, well, if I'm not here, who's going to help them? You know, oh. like you feel so special, like. Me and my friends, we care about these people, but if nobody else does, like, you know, it was like a big thing for me to leave and feel like you're abandoning this population, but it was taking a toll on me. Um, and so I love doing forensic work. Now I do a lot of competency evaluations, mitigation evaluations, juvenile offenders. Um, I've done a little bit of sex offender stuff, but that's not really my niche fitness for duty. And so the reason I love that is because number one, I get to kind of see patients do an evaluation and never see them again, yeah. which is <laughs> to be perfectly honest, it's less draining than like doing treatment and therapy all the time. And also, you know, you get to come in and say like, here's what's going on with this person. And then the court system gets to, they, they typically listen to you. You get to say like, look, he's sick. He won't survive in prison. He needs help. He needs to be in a psychiatric hospital. And then the judge will send them to a psychiatric hospital. And you're like, wow, like I did a good thing, you know, and I love that. Or juvenile evaluations. I've been doing a lot of juvenile mitigation evaluations and, you know, the amount of poverty, you know, these are not bad kids. They just have horrific circumstances, trauma, perpetual violence. They don't even have shoes and clothes and food. They don't have their bare necessities. And so they end up committing crimes. And again, I'm not making excuses for people's behaviors, but when you put it in context, you're like, of course, this kid was stealing. He's literally hungry. And so to get into a court and be able to explain that and be like, he's not a budding psychopath. He's not conduct disordered. He's literally poor and has, and he's not acting out in school because he's oppositional. He has a history of trauma. Mm -hmm. Able to explain that and push for treatment is like, there's no feeling like it. You know, they're really, it's just awesome. Yeah, we were, we, I forgot what assignment I had to do. It's already blacked out. <laughs> it's already gone. Um, but I, I think I was looking at like 
how trauma impacts like juvenile delinquency or something like that but it was talking about like ace scores and like how much like if you have a higher ace score like you're more likely to offend um or like be considered a delinquent which I don't like that term but like yeah um but yeah I, I thought that was so interesting like you were saying like it's not that this person is like this violent psychopath it's because of the systemic issues and the mental health issues that are going on and we, we're not paying attention to that we need to no and we don't care and we're just they're no. just taking these kids that are acting out and they're saying oh you have adhd there's no neuropsychological testing there's no psychiatry there's nothing involved they just go you have adhd here take some ritalin and 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 be okay and it's like he doesn't have adhd he has difficulty focusing because he's literally hungry or because he's scared because th there's a gang war going on in his school. He's scared of, you know, like he's inattentive because he's literally hypervigilant. Huh. He's got PTSD. And so teasing out those issues and being able to explain them to the court system and be like, look, here's what's really going on. It's super satisfying. I really enjoy that work. I are you specifically focusing more on juvenile stuff right now? You also mentioned you do like fitness for duty stuff and competency. Yeah. So most of my work, I would say it's about 30, 40% competency, adults and children. Um, so I get a lot of malingering and also a lot of very psychotic, you know, very ill patients. Um, and then I get quite a bit of uh, maybe two or three juvenile evaluations a month doing these mitigation stuff. What's really going on with this kid? Why is he getting in trouble or why is he, how did he end up in the jail system? And then I do on the flip side, I do law enforcement evaluations. So anybody who wants to be a cop or a correction officer, they have to go for, um, you know, a psychological screening, um, which is good, right? Especially after um, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement with George Floyd, it's like not everybody should be a cop. Yep. Right. And it blows my mind that some of these police departments around the country don't even have psychological screenings because you can hopefully tease out some of these people who should not have a gun and a badge. Mm -hmm. So that's that, that work, even though it's not my favorite, it's still pretty cool to be able to do that and kind of not always be with inmates. Um, and then yeah, fitness for duty. So for example, um, there was unfortunately an inmate suicide at a jail that I work for recently. And one of the officers was having kind of a hard time dealing with that. Um, so doing kind of debriefing work and making sure he's got some, some support and resources before he goes back to work in the jail. So it's cool. I have like a mishmash of different stuff that I do. I also do some clinical evaluations like autism and ADHD. And, and so I like to keep a little bit of clinical stuff. So I stay fresh on my testing and stuff yeah. like that. Well, like you said, it's so important to have that clinical foundation first when, before you do the evaluation. So it makes sense. Absolutely. If you don't know your diagnoses, and again, diagnoses are not the be all and end all, but if you don't know them and how they present and how they look and how they come across, you can't really make a forensic opinion because you don't have clinical knowledge. Yeah. I, before like starting my doctorate and kind of within my first year too, I, I recently switched jobs, but I was a forensic mental health clinician at like an outpatient place. And I did like compliance reporting stuff for people on probation here. And I thought that was the best experience because even just going into my first year, I'm like, I like, we just had like the 101 psychopathology classes, but it's like, I remember these people, yeah. I remember the people with these diagnoses. And it was so much easier to like, like you said, like sort out the differences between all of them.
Yeah. And I've worked with psychologists who are very, very book smart, but not exactly. And, you know, every level, master's level, bachelor's level, you see people in the field that you're like, okay, you have a 4.0 GPA and you did really well on the EPPP and you, you can recite all the books, but you don't know how to talk to humans. <laughs> That's yeah. I'm sure you've seen them too. You're like, this is yeah. concerning. Like you need to, yeah. you, we know that the best the best predictor of a successful outcomes in treatment is rapport. And if you can't mm-hmm. build a rapport with someone, it doesn't matter if you're using CBT, DBT, psychodynamics, psychoanalytic, it doesn't matter. Yep. You have to be able to talk to humans. Which you think that would be like common sense, right? Like you're going into a service profession, but no, yeah, I've seen yeah. it already. Even like the self-awareness that people have or lack like they don't have, I think is really interesting to me. I'm like, do you not realize what you're doing or like what you're saying and how that can contribute to like not only offending in a population, but maybe further marginalizing them? Like it just blows my mind. It it's it is mind blowing. You're just like, what? How did that come out of your mouth? What are you doing? Well, welcome to the real world. I'm glad you see it, not just me. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, it's okay though. We're it's we fine. still got four more years. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, yeah. So when you were doing prison work, um, and you said you were a counselor and did like group stuff and individual. Yeah. What kind I, of group? I, um, so I, I worked at the, I worked in prisons at the bachelor's level, the master's level, okay. the psychologist level. And then I ended up being a clinical director of one of the prisons here in Florida, um, which was, had 500, uh, close management inmates. So those are basically the worst inmates in the state. They're, they're high psychopathy. These are the guys who, don't just commit crimes in the community. They continue to make, commit crimes in prison. Uh, they're raping, murdering, selling drugs. These are the worst of the worst, if you will. Um, so when I was starting out, I applied to a prison in New Jersey. It was like a minimum security kind of work release program. And I had no idea what I was doing. I had a bachelor's. I was 22 or 23. I had been bartending. I just was like, this is what I want to do. So I'm applying. And I went to that prison and they were like, okay, if you really want this job, you're going to come back tomorrow and give a 45 minute lecture on feelings and emotions to 150 inmates. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. So I went home and I did this whole thing. And then the next day I walked into the prison, I walked into the gym and there were 150 men in orange jumpsuits. And I was like, oh, this is how I die. I'm going to have a panic attack. I'm going to have a heart attack. and I'm going to die. And then I just thought, let me just try. Like, I, this is what you want to do. Let's do it. And I pushed through the fear. And then within like five, 10 minutes, it was like, it, they were actually listening to me and it, they were actually like engaged. And I was like, oh my God, I can do this. And I got the job. So that was great. And then at the master's level, yeah, I did individual therapy. I did um, group therapy. I did, uh, so, you know, like anger management, domestic violence, substance abuse, relapse prevention, uh, criminal thinking, a couple of DBT groups. Um, and you know, again, in, in prisons in California and New York, they were very, you know, very treatment oriented and they were actual treatment. Whereas in some other States, it's literally what we call like drive-by treatment. You just go to the cell. Like, are you suicidal, homicidal? No. Okay. Next. Are you suicidal, homicidal? No. Okay. Next. You know, like there's no real treatment because all they care about is liability and making sure people don't kill themselves or don't kill others. And it's really, really frustrating and sad. Oh, wow. Did you enjoy doing that group work? I I did. I do like doing, I, I like doing groups. I don't know if you've ever done groups, but the reason I like groups is because you start off as like the, the person in charge. Yeah. But once that group dynamic 
builds, all you have to do is sit back. They'll, they'll hold each other accountable. They'll call each other out, you know, whether it's males, females, inmates, non-inmates, you know, whatever, DBT group, whatever. You start to just pull back and be like, they'll call each other out and they'll teach each other. And it's such a cool dynamic to see that happening. So I love groups. I, I always love groups. Group is fun. I, I did, what did I do at my, I did anxiety and like managing it and whatnot. And then I did like a journaling group too, which was, it was oh, me fun. Too, me too. Me too. Journaling was fun. Like it, that one's pretty like laid back and you're just like, here's some prompts. Like, let's talk about it after. But the managing anxiety one, like you were talking about how they start to like have their own conversations about it. That was so interesting. I, I miss teaching groups. They're cool. I agree. Cause you'll be like, okay, I'll do some CBT stuff and let's do like cognitive reframing or like breathing exercise. And then by group three or four, you'll have one guy telling the other guy, like you're catas- you're catastrophizing. It's like, <gasps> they're learning and they're telling each other and you're like, yay, you don't even have to do anything. (laughs) It's the easiest hour. Mine were an hour. (laughs) Yeah. Mine were an hour too. Hour, 90 minutes. Something like that. Yeah. They were cool. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I think this is so cool that, like I said before, I, I am, uh, starstruck again, but I think it's just so cool that like all the stuff that you've done and it's like gotten you to this point. And I don't know, I think, I think it's awesome. I'm just, thank you for being here. No, I appreciate it. Believe me, I'm sure I'll be interviewing you in two years. So who knows? Um, So this made me think of it. Um, So in your bio that you wrote to me, you talked about how like your main goal is like giving like an accurate diagnosis and like making sure, you know, everything is good there. Um, Have you seen issues where maybe not necessarily the diagnosis you give, but just like maybe coworkers, um, what are like the implications of like giving a wrong diagnosis or doing like an, a wrong assessment or anything like that and how that can play out in forensics? Big question, but we've been yeah. talking about this a lot <laughs> in class. It's a big question because it's literally like the bane of my existence. It's my biggest pet peeve. It Am is- I traumatizing you? I hope yes. not. <laughs> yes. And I know I love it. I could talk about this all day. So, um, and that's why I do on my IG, I do the misdiagnosis money because it literally drives me nuts so the most common i've seen is people who are not street savvy or correctional savvy if you will and yes you need that if you're going to be a correctional psychologist forensic psychologist they don't realize that inmates have access to drugs in prisons there are more drugs in prisons than there are in the community okay there is corrupt staff there's manipulative inmates there are drugs in prison so what i see most often is inmates will be getting high and they'll be psychotic from k2 meth heroin cocaine you name it and they'll get slapped with a psychotic diagnosis and then that psychotic diagnosis yeah it drives me nuts it follows them for years and they get put on haldol and trazodone and all these crazy antipsychotic meds don't get me wrong antipsychotic meds are great for truly psychotic people who need them. Mm-hmm. But you just give him a, give him a urine toxicology or let him, let him get sober for two days. You'll see he's not psychotic. He's freaking high. Awesome. That's the biggest one I see. The other one I see is that clinicians are not thorough enough in terms of their clinical interviewing. So they'll ask somebody, well, okay, what have you been diagnosed with in the past? Oh, I'm bipolar. Okay, tell me about your bipolar. Well, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be in a really good mood. And then by four o'clock, I'll realize my girlfriend didn't write me. And so then I'm in a really bad mood. And it's like, okay, that's not bipolar. That's called life, right? That's called you have low frustration tolerance. And we can work with that. 
we can work with that. That's not bipolar. And people who don't know what true mania is of like somebody not sleeping for three days, not being tired, hearing voices, grandiosity, who don't understand true bipolar, they'll just go, oh, they're moody. Let me slap a bipolar diagnosis and put them on Abilify. And it's like, oh my God. Or you get, you know, people not able to distinguish malingering or able to understand a personality disorder or being dismissive with personalities. Oh, he's just personality disorder. And it's like, wait a second. There's treatment for personality disorders. There's treatment for borderline. There's treatment for avoidant. There's there's even treatment for antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy. So people will sometimes be dismissive. I digress, but to get back to your question, when I see a misdiagnosis, not only does it follow the person forever and ever, because it's it's harder to get rid of a diagnosis than to add one, you'll see them on meds that make them sicker or make them worse. You'll see predatory inmates put in a psychiatric hospital or a psych unit with truly sick patients who are then, they're now sexually assaulting them or manipulating them or stealing their food, stealing from them, fight, you know, using them. And that's really the dangerous part where people are like, oh, what's the big deal? The big deal is you're sending a psychopath into a psych unit where there are truly schizophrenic or low intellectually functioning people. They're being predatory and you want to protect all your patients. Yep. Um, So that's my biggest pet peeve. That's it. It literally drives me nuts. Yeah. Well, and that's such a good point, too, because there's research out there sharing how like people who have been who experienced di- or experienced schizophrenia or diagnosed with schizophrenia are more likely to be victims of assault and crime not creating crime or doing crime so again it's just like with all these misdiagnoses it's just or diagnoses it's like how can people not see this like it's causing more issues Correct. And that's the other thing. You see a headline in the newspaper, oh, schizophrenic man pushes somebody in front of the subway. Those are the rare instances, right? We know uh, typically mental illness does not make somebody more violent. Like you said, it makes them more susceptible to predatory behaviors. They're usually victims. And so when I see antisocials and psychopaths mixed up with truly mentally ill inmates, it's like, this is, this is potentially disastrous. And, you know, and again, I'm not saying antisocials and psychopaths don't need treatment. There is treatment, but mm-hmm. it's very different. And so like you pointed out, then they get the wrong treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's it, to me, it's akin to like a medical diagnosis. You know, if I have a headache and you're telling me I have migraines, but in reality, it's a brain tumor. Think about the consequences of that. Yeah. You know, and people think I'm exaggerating or it's not that serious, but it really is. Mm-hmm. You know, if I have a brain tumor, I probably need chemo or surgery versus a migraine. I probably need an oral medication. Well, same thing with, you know, somebody who's high and misdiagnosed as psychosis. They need substance abuse treatment. I'm not saying be dismissive of them. They need a different kind of treatment. They need substance abuse. They need relapse prevention. They need, you know, all that kind of stuff. Whereas a psychotic person needs, you know, uh, different kind of treatment they need antipsychotics you you know so mis- misdiagnosis in mental health is a really really huge issue and i don't think people realize how pervasive expensive mm-hmm. and detrimental it can be to people yeah no absolutely and i love your videos you post about them because it's they're it's so informative too and obviously like they're quick reels and so people can get a sense of it um it also just makes me think of like how social media and you know like people in prisons have access to phones sometimes usually and so it's like when they are reading like oh I have bipolar and I can just say the symptoms and then you know the psychologist is not looking out for hey this is actually not just because you can read something doesn't mean you actually are experiencing it that's a whole other mess I would imagine (laughs) 
That's a whole other mess. And, you know, thankfully not a lot of my, but you're right. Cause in my clinical practice, which I do a couple of times a month, people come in, I've had people come in lately that are like, hi, I'm autistic. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, you're, you're, well, I read about it online. It says I have difficulty making friends. It says, you know, I have sensory stimuli. It says that I like to rock and it's like, okay. And then you do a thorough clinical interview and psychological testing. And you find out that they have avoidant disorder, avoidant personality, or they have, again, a history of trauma, or they have major depressive disorder. That's why they're isolating from people. And I, I have grown 45 year old adults coming to me saying, hi, I'm autistic. And it's like, no, no. Where did you get that? TikTok. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Did you? Oh, okay. <laughs> I hate that. I and Oh my I, God, uh, then why are you here? If TikTok already diagnosed you, you don't need me. I say this all the time for like my business too. I'm like, even the podcast, like it, this is just like one stepping stone. Like it is not your diagnosis. This is not like you seeking counseling or mental health treatment from me or anything you see on like Instagram or TikTok. Like it's just a first step, but you should never make that your last resort and then self-diagnose. Like that is always a problem always a problem. And, and like, of course I put out these, you know, try to be informative videos, but you know, no. that's not, that doesn't replace going to a licensed professional who's been trained to do this. And people don't realize that psych testing is like a psychological evaluation is a huge deal. I mean, to diagnose somebody with ADHD, you need to do like computer testing an IQ test. You need to rule out learning disabilities. You need to do you need collateral interviews, you need school records, you need to observe them in more than one setting. I mean, you have to do all of that stuff. I end up writing 20 to 30 page reports just to make sure somebody's actually meeting criteria for ADHD. But people are so quick to be like, you know, I I don't pay attention in class, so I have ADHD. No, you're bored mm -hmm. or you're disciplined mm -hmm. or you're anxious or you're depressed. Oh or you're too smart and you're, yeah. you know, there's so many reasons why you're not paying attention or people have difficulty focusing, but they just go, Oh, I have ADHD mm -hmm. and I need some Adderall. It's like, Oh God. Just like you were saying earlier, like maybe it's cause you're poor and you can't, you're hungry and you can't pay attention. Maybe it's cause you didn't sleep last night. Maybe it's cause you're stressed out about the, the neighborhood you're in. I mean, it could be so many different things. And I find that both laymen and professionals are too quick to just slap people with diagnoses. And, uh, you know, yes, I'm a fan of the DSM-5-TR, but again, the DSM-5-TR is not the be all and end all. Mm -hmm. It's a diagnosis tells you only so much. And really the other thing people don't realize is the, the purpose of a diagnosis is for other professionals to like talk quickly to each other. So if I'm the psychologist and there's a therapist and there's a psychiatrist, if I say this person has borderline personality disorder, it's just a quick way of telling the other professional, Hey, here's the cluster of symptoms they're going, you know, but person A and person B both have borderline personality disorder. They're never going to present the same way. Two schizophrenics, two depressed people, two ADHD people. You have to individualize it. You can't just go, Oh, here's your diagnosis. And done that's yeah. not how this works yep and lab like the whole issue of labeling too which is, i think is what we're getting at too like when we over pathologize people and just slap a label like it's it's an issue especially within forensics but even outside of forensics too it's just like we're altering how people perceive these people like this baseline heuristic for these which is like you need a graduate degree to be able to say these things. And, right. you know, I, I'm not completed in my, you know, my training for that yet, but I think it, it, we've already seen it, like how much of an issue it is. And definitely I bet you have as well. And it's just, it's crazy. <laughs> 
And nuance, you need mm-hmm. nuance. You know, I could see 10 people with PTSD. They will not, none, none of them will present the same way. And none of them will have the same treatment needs. I mean, they could all do exposure therapy because that's the treatment of choice, but that doesn't mean you, you know, I think we're, we're failing to individualize it. We're failing to individualize people. We're just throwing them in boxes and people say that, oh, you're so pro diagnosis. You're just labeling people or putting them in a box. No, I'm giving, you know, just like I said, if I have a headache, I want to know, is it a migraine? Is it a cluster headache? Is it a brain tumor? That doesn't mean that that's the be all and end all. That just gives me a little piece of information to guide the treatment. That's all it does. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And especially just like if we bring it back to like the whole like systemic issues and marginalization of populations issues when we slap specific diagnoses on those populations, like especially for uh, for forensics, like I'm thinking about like even IQ tests, like being unfairly used, like using the waste and stuff. And then like all these different, like I just, my brain is just like going through things are like, yeah, so many issues. The <laughs> IQ is, I mean, the waste, yeah, it's a great tool to get an IQ, but it really only measures one part of intelligence and it's not culturally you know it's not culturally all-encompassing and so you have to know that and so like another one I see is like I'll see um you know uh Latino or African-American inmates yelling Mm. in or they're they're speaking loudly in the prison and people who are not culturally comment oh my god they're antisocial why why are they antisocial because they're loud how do you know that's not a cultural thing? How do you know they didn't talk that way in their house? How do you how do you know they didn't have to, 10 siblings and they had to yell to get their point across? How do you know anything? And yeah. they just automatically, you know, oh my God, they're so loud and rude. They must be antisocial. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. that's, you know, what? Yeah, especially like the African-American community, like labeling conduct disorder and like antisocial just because, you know, maybe they are just passionate and that's just how they talk and it's not aggression. And like, I don't know, it's just, it's yeah, they, they, like, they, give thor- they give like trazodone and thorazine to somebody who's being loud in the prison and it's like, okay, well, he just got to prison. Maybe he's loud because his whole entire life has completely changed and he's adjusting to the shock that he's lost his freedom and he doesn't need trazodone. He -hmm. needs someone to let him vent. Yep. And who knows what this person's interaction was with the police, like all the generational trauma that comes with that. And now he's in a place with correction officers telling him when to eat, when to sleep, when to go to the bathroom, when to go outside. And don't get me started on not all correction officers, but a lot of correction officers. Like you said, is that another layer of trauma? Mm -hmm. He's not not antisocial. He's in shock. Yep. Yep. His nervous system's out of whack right now. And I don't don't blame him. And again, it's not to say like all police are bad, law enforcement's bad. I'm not saying that either. I just think let's contextually understand, even if we've never been arrested before, like let's get, let's have some understanding of like, this is a scary situation to lose your freedom. Right. You're, you're, Morgan, you're giving me hope. You're going to be a great psychologist. Thank you. I just think it's just like shocking, but also it's like, you know, like why would someone understand this right now? Like, obviously we, we have our training, like I'm working on my training. You have it. You've seen so much more like, I don't know. I, and that's kind of the reason for the podcast too, is just like, not everyone would understand this and how could they, you know? And so I hope like conversations like this are easily acceptable and accessible as well. Right. And I'm not out here blaming laymen. You know, when no. people watch a TikTok or watch an Instagram and say, oh my God, I meet criteria for that. 
you know, I want to empathize with them because that means there's something speaking to you. That being said, you can't just stop there. You absolutely have to go see a mental health professional to talk about your concerns so that you can tease it out and see what's really going on. But when people are spreading false information or clinicians aren't doing their due diligence or, you know, that's when it drives, it just, it drives me nuts because we're at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's not about being right. It's not about being seen. It's about what we're doing for our patients. Mm -hmm. We're doing a disservice to our patients if we're not doing our due diligence and right by them, you know, and those have, that has serious consequences. You know, I've I've had inmates commit suicide because they were on the wrong meds. It's like, what are you doing? You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yep. Cause it changes the whole treatment route that you give someone based on their diagnosis. So if we're not Correct. doing our due diligence, like you're saying, like it can totally alter their path. Absolutely. It's, it's, it can be detrimental. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you're talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk about this all day. It's literally my pet peeve. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about like maybe how society perceives this population. Um, I, I share a little, I worked like two years or so outpatient wise, never worked in prison, but I've done like those like crisis evals of patients of mine who were, um, who I was seeing, but what do you, what comes up a lot for you when you're trying to explain to people who are not in the forensic realm about inpatients? Like what are their maybe misconceptions or thoughts, beliefs about these people? I think you know, and again, it depends on the political and socio socio-political climate. I find that in Florida, they're very much, they shouldn't have broken the law, lock them up and throw away the key. And it's like, I'm again, I'm a big proponent of personal accountability. If you mm-hmm. did something wrong, you need consequences. That's actually yep. part of treatment, holding people accountable. That's another thing. Don't get me started on coddling treatment. But anyway, you know, oh, I want to talk about that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like people, you know, oh, I'm big on accountability. I think that is a treatment intervention in itself, holding yourself accountable. That being said, again, I find that people aren't individualizing it, you know, just because somebody ended up in prison doesn't mean number one, they're a horrible human being. Number two, a lot of people think inmates are not intelligent. Hmm. That's a misconception. I've seen inmates make shanks out of toilet paper in front of me. And I tell them all the time, you're if you used your your smarts for legal stuff you could like work for nasa or be like the next bill gates yeah Yeah. so the fact that people think inmates aren't intelligent and again i'm using the term inmates and i'm over generalizing but Mm -hmm. that's what people you know and the other thing that again people don't want to take into account um socioeconomic cultural factors poverty Mm -hmm. i am so tired of having all my juvenile patients come from chronic poverty and it's like so where are the rich kids because i know we know rich kids can misbehave as well mm-hmm. is it because they have better legal representation is it because they get a diff- second chance is it because they have resources and treatment so they don't end up in the prison system so i think a lot of people think that you're a criminal you did something bad, go to jail, pay your dues. And while that may very well be the case, people are in prison and jail for a host of different reasons. Mm -hmm. Is it substance abuse? Is it mental illness? Is it that you're a psychopath? Is it that you came from a horrible background and a horrible upbringing and your circumstances were absolutely 
horrendous that this was literally the, you know, I've met with juveniles who, and adult inmates who they don't, they come from such horrific backgrounds that they expect to go to prison. Oh, wow. They, yeah. You know, like for me, I was expected to go to college. I can't imagine what my life would be like if my parents didn't say like, well, you don't have an option. You have to go to college. And now think if that was your way of thinking that at some point in my life, I will end up in prison. It's just the path that I was born into. How horrible is that? These kids don't have a, they don't have a chance and, mm -hmm. and we want to make them out to be the bad piece of people. Cause it makes us feel better, but that's not always the case. Yeah, no, absolutely. I actually did a, um, a project for school, um, about, forensics surprise um <laughs> but we were talking about um classes or i was talking about classism within the criminal justice system and how you know like you were talking about earlier like where are these rich kids where are maybe just rich people in general you know they yeah. have the legal representation the money to like post bail and get out of bail and so and just all that stuff but even after maybe they actually do their time like all the legal fees like people get stuck in the criminal justice system because they can't afford it anymore and it's like now they have this criminal record now yeah. they can't even get a job maybe they had education who knows but if they didn't they didn't make a lot of money to start with and now they have this like no one's gonna want to hire them Hi. housing and it's just like all this like I, I did like case management too for the, some of the clients I counseled, but it's like they can't even find a house or like a place, an apartment to live because they have a felony charge. And it's like, right. I'm not saying what you did was good, obviously, but it's like, geez, like you just are in this cycle, maybe for your it, rest of your life. Yeah, it, it perpetuates itself. It's like the system is set up to have them recidivate. Mm -hmm. Not saying we aren't, responsible for our own choices but it's really set up you can't like you said you can't get a job you can't get a house you can't vote you yep. can't live in a certain area what are you supposed to do and then so you end up selling drugs again do i yeah do i 100 blame you not really no nope. I mean, like you know what i mean like and then like when it comes to my sister is a, a public defender in new york and, you know, she works really hard and she, she, she goes all out for her clients, but she's swamped these public defenders. It's not even their fault. I work with public defenders who are absolutely awesome. They come from the best law schools. They have their clients best interests at heart, but they're swamped and they can only do so much. It's like the system, when people say the system is broken, they don't realize it's so it's actually not broken. It's set up just the way it's supposed yeah. to be. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Keep people, and people of color down. It's working. The system and, is working. You, and get money. <laughs> and get money. And greed is at the top. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think yeah. that's such a good point too. And it's just like, it kind of, I don't know if you feel this way too, but it's kind of like a sinking heart feeling too. Cause it's like, you know, we're studying, we're doing all these things to, you know, help and serve this population. But it's also like, I hope I'm doing enough, but it's just like that core belief of like, kind of you know that perpetuating cycle of like am I doing enough well there's also this system at play that like I individually can't change and that's difficult too I don't know I don't know if you feel that and, and you know self-care is all the new trendy thing but self-care for me is you know it's not a bubble bath and a manicure although that's one form of self-care self-care is making sure especially as a clinician that you're able to continue doing your job and 
I was finding in the prison that I was angry all the time. I was having anxiety. I was not sleeping well. And I felt like, you know, not to sound like a, a narcissist, but I felt like it was me against the world, like just climbing this uphill. Like, you know, I care. Most of my colleagues care. Most of my close supervisors care. But there's, it feel, we feel so helpless because the laws and the money and the resources just aren't there. And so you're like, I can't, you know, I, I worked in prisons on and off for 20 years. It's like, at some point I have to take care of myself because now I'm, I'm not even helping my patients because I'm just a ball of anxiety, a ball of anger, a ball of depression. Like I have to get out of this. And, th and then that's such a conflicting feeling. Cause you're like, am I, am I giving up? Am yeah. I just saying, forget it. The system wins. Yeah. No, exactly. So what do you recommend? Because as I haven't started, I haven't started the uh, practicum or the internship process yet. But um, and I've done, like I said, I've done a little work in it, but never prisons yet. So how how do you navigate that that self-care in quotes? I hate that term as well. But yeah, I hate it. Too. Navigate, I hate it too. How do you navigate through this where it's not you're not going to get burnt out, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I, I hate, I hate the term self-care too, but, but because to me, self-care is holding yourself accountable. It's yep. not a bubble, but um, you know, what I found really helpful is to create um, a support system of like-minded people. Um, and it, it sounds like your school is kind of geared towards that. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the times I tend to work in a vacuum and just be in my own head. And I had a mentor say, you have to consult, you have to consult with other people. And once I started building a network of other forensic psychologists, and I have friends in Texas, California, Arkansas, New York, nice. and we have, you know, group chats and, and that helps a lot because then you realize, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not the only person feeling this way. My best friend is somebody I met in the Florida prison. She's a social, she's a licensed clinical social worker and humor. Oh my God, you know, the jokes we make in prison are completely dark humor and inappropriate. And if anybody knew, they would probably put us in a psych hospital, but that's how you get through the day. You have to make like murder jokes and rape jokes, to be honest, to get through the day. So, you know, besides the obvious stuff of setting boundaries, when you leave work, try to shut it off. You know, when you're first starting out, you take it home with you and you're going to sleep and you're like, how can I help this patient? That's something you just learn with experience that like, I'm not doing anybody a service by obsessing over this, shutting it off, and then making sure that you cultivate other parts of your life. Like you have this podcast, you know, whether it's, you know, people laugh because I post my workout videos on Instagram, but yeah. for me, exercise is like, it's like my Prozac. Mm -hmm. Taking away from, pro you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the reason I'm so adamant about doing things like riding my motorcycle or going to the gym is because I have to do that in order to remain a good psychologist. Mm -hmm. I can't, I already am ashamed with how much true crime I watch. It's not okay. It's not okay. Like it's, I come it's home, not I watch an unhealthy amount. It's no, okay. I mean, like I used to come home. I used to work at Sing Sing Correctional Facility, which is a very famous prison in New York. Yeah. And I used to come on and turn on forensic files. And my mother in her thick French accent would be like, don't you get enough of these at work? And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, and still now, 20 years later, I come home, I turn on Jeffrey Docker doc documentaries. Yep. I turn on the first 48. I turn, I, I watch all of it. So you know, for me, that's relaxing, fine. But at some point I have to shut it off and like, go have dinner with friends, get on my motorcycle, go to the gym. So between that, having a support system of like-minded individuals and making sure you have appropriate boundaries, there's hope for us, no. I think. Yeah, no, that's such a great point too. And even you mentioned it briefly, like um, all these things are super helpful. And, you know, obviously the gym isn't, medication and like all this stuff too and that's not therapy but 
I think that's such a great outlet to have just from a day-to-day basis. You know, I think the gym is, I, I definitely resonate with the gym. I try to yeah. go every day. That's yeah. something, especially like the aggression piece. Like, yes, I'm like, if I'm pissed off from the day, strength training is awesome for that. Or if I'm like, like for me, like if I'm doing cardio, like cardio is different. If I'm feeling like yeah. sad or have a lot of thoughts in my mind, like running is perfect for me. So I think again, it's like, it's very subjective for everyone listening, right? Like we're like what you do for yourself, self-care in quotes, what I do is going to be different, but I think it's great that you already, you know, obviously have to know you're, you're so far in your field, but I think it's good that you have that routine. Yeah. And it's trial and error. You know, I didn't always, when I was in school and I was swamped, it wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, I always, for me, working out has always been a non-negotiable because, um, because of the mental benefits for me, like you said, aggression and anger, depression, anxiety, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I had to wake up at four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, I made it happen. Um, and, and that's not for everybody and that's okay, but find your thing, find your thing that gets you out of yourself. And I should also point out, I have a therapist. I would not go yes. without a therapist. Yeah. Um, you know, I, that's just me. I, I, I think anybody who's a clinician should at some point be in therapy. Um, that for me is a non-negotiable and I don't have any problems about sharing that. You know, we talk about breaking the stigma, but people don't really share that. And I, I would not go a week without seeing my therapist. Absolutely I, not. I totally agree with you. I think it's a requirement at my school that you have to have Good. it. Um, but I don't know why, because people, people always go, Oh, like, are you unable to do your job because you're not mentally well? I'm like, what is that? Like, where do you need it? Like, where is this coming from? That's, that, that makes no sense. I mean, we talk about physical health being proactive, you know, eating right, sleeping right, exercising, you know, not doing drugs and smoking, all that kind of stuff, but mental health should be the same thing. You should be proactive with your mental health. And I love that your doctoral program makes that a requirement because a lot more, more and more doctoral programs are starting to make it a requirement. And I absolutely think it should be like, I think if you're going to deliver therapy, you should at least be in therapy at one point in your life. I think that's great just kind of as we start to wrap up a little and you know i i love everything you do obviously um is there any advice you would have for any future psychologists or myself um maybe specifically in forensics that you would like to share i mean i think we covered a lot of it and you seem like you're in a really knowledgeable insightful place so again having a support system remembering that the the journey is it's so cliche, but it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, I watched a lot of people graduate before me and it would make me feel a certain way. Like, Oh, they're finishing and I'm not, or I'm older or I'm younger, whatever. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's your own thing. You'll get there when you get there, having a support system, making sure you have outlets. Um, and when it comes to forensic psychology, I know we started the podcast with this, but I want to emphasize again, having a good clinical foundation is key because if you don't understand autism, ADHD, depression, bipolar, um, and then not getting, after everything we just shit talked, not getting discouraged, you know? Um, Yes, the system is broken. Yes, this country does not have the best rehabilitation prison system. We're trying to be more pro mental health. I think that's a good thing. At least we're talking about it and social media can be a really good tool. I don't think we're there yet, but expecting that you're gonna, I don't want to discourage you, but you are going to feel frustrated. You are going to feel frustrated and 
I'm sure you've already experienced it because you've shared that you experienced with misdiagnosis and okay. case management and all that kind of stuff. And knowing that that's not your weight to carry. Mm-hmm. You're one person, you can do your job, you can clean up your side of the street, but there are some things that, you know, other than making sure we vote and maybe march yeah. a little bit, yeah. make, you know, whatever we can do as social justice warriors, we can only do so much. We can't take on the weight of the world because or else we're going to drown ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about that at my school too. And I, that's part of also the reason I liked my school because I also have a bachelor's not only in psych, but in political science, like nice. advocacy work is so important and we don't talk about it enough because it's like, how are you going to get systemic issues changed or even talked about if we're not doing government work or like advocating or lobbying or, you know, any of that kinds of stuff. So I think that's a good point that you brought up. Yeah, it is a good point. Cause we talk about the system is broken, but what are we really doing to change it? And again, not taking on the weight of the world, but mm-hmm. make sure you vote, make sure you vote in your local elections, make sure that you're reading the newspaper, that you're aware of what's going on. I mean, you know, I don't want to open the political box, but there's been so many insane changes in the last few years. It's like, we have to advocate. We're the ones that know what's going on in people's minds, so to speak. Yeah. If we don't do the advocacy work, who's going to do it? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I don't think people realize how much, which is the great thing about forensic psych, maybe we're biased, but I'm like understanding law and the laws out there yes. and how they're impacting our clients and patients. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I've worked with, uh, I worked in the prison one time when um, there was some law that passed about commuting, um, uh, commuting uh, marijuana people. I had guys serving like 30 years for selling weed. Oh my. And it was, yeah. And it was amazing that they switched, you know, okay, they legalized marijuana and blah, blah, blah. But then they were like, so what do I do now? And I was like, I don't know. I don't even know where to point them to. Like, we have to be aware of stuff like that. You know, you're, ser- you're serving 30 years for selling weed, but weed is now legal. I have to figure out, you know, even though that's not necessarily my job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is my job. Yeah. Oh. As a human. Uh, circling back real quick because it made me think about it do you come across people who have been um maybe falsely convicted of a, I know it's not your decision to make that but like do you come across that very often in like the mental health arena as well I feel you know like- that's, that's a really good question because I, I can't watch documentaries on falsely convicted people because it tears my heart I can't imagine somebody oh. being instant going to prison I just I can't like the the Central Park Five documentary and all that kind of stuff. I I can't watch that stuff. It, I just have somebody's, you know, I follow the Innocence Network on social yep. media. And every time I see somebody get exonerated after 30, 40 years, like they'll never get that time back. Um, I've never come across somebody who has so blatantly like this person is innocent and they're in jail or prison for something they didn't do. I have seen people get poor plea bargains or poor plea deals because they didn't know better um get extra time for not snitching or get less time for so I've seen like complicated issues like that or getting charged for a crime they didn't necessarily do but they did the other three crimes that were attached to it so not so much like the Hollywoodified version and I shouldn't say just Hollywood because obviously people get wrong convicted all the time but not so much where it's like very clear and cut more where the justice system has kind of not done the best by them. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes guys will tell me, well, I'm in for this murder. I didn't do this murder, but I did another one. And it's like, Dude. okay. <laughs> Thank you. You answered my question. <laughs> I didn't do this one though, but the other one I never got caught for. And I'm like, okay, let's just. <laughs> sure, sure. 
there's this thing called karma and i think that's at play here yeah and then it's like let's let's just make it karma okay let's just go with that <laughs> yeah i i think i i saw something recently like i forgot this gentleman's uh name but he got exonerated on his like 72nd birthday or something yeah i saw that i saw that i know he did like 47 years and i was like <gasps> they took yeah. his life like they took yep. his life i would be so i i think i started crying when i'm just that, very emotional too. i was just like oh my same. gosh like that sucks same and you like you how do you you can't write that wrong and that just makes me, and like, those are the things, like, I try to avoid those as Same. well, because I'm like, this is where the system, like, the criminal justice system is just so effed up. Like, <laughs> I, and it's, it's, it's sad too. And it's like, it definitely makes that, it makes it very disheartening. But it's like, with all the stuff that you're saying, like, keep in mind, like, the scope of what we're here for. Yeah. And yeah, all that. So I was just curious about that. I don't know if it's as often as the media portrays it but I sh I'm sure it is I I'm sure it is but have you know I've worked with thousands of inmates and I've never seen that a case like the one we were just talking about nothing that cut and dry but you know other issues in the legal system for sure yeah well um before we wrap up I kind of want you to advertise yourself because I feel like more people should know you and I I also ask every one of my guests but where can people find you if they just want to learn more from you? Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so my, I have, I always forget my, uh, what's, what's it called? My, uh, handle. Okay. Oh. I, my Instagram handle is my name of my private practice. It's rise psychological services. Um, and then I also have a YouTube channel, which I should probably pay attention to and upload stuff. Same name, rise psychological services, and um oh i'm coming out on a paramount plus documentary in october i'll have to email you that uh, yes. what is it gonna be about so they um you know how when they have true crime documentaries they have like the forensic psychologist expert um so yeah i know i did that i did one on tubi but that one was a mess um so yeah they it's four episodes on like serial killers and so i'm discussing like psychopathy and and all that kind of stuff. So that's really exciting. I think it comes out in October. I'll, I'll totally shoot you an email. Um, yeah, very, very cool. I'm excited about that. Um, and then um, just my website, um, www.risepsychological.com. And I have um, some seminar, some webinars, one on psychopathy and one on malingering. And if anybody sends me a message that they're a student, I'll give them like a huge 80, 90% discount. Um, and you can get, you can get continuing education credits for those. So I mean, yeah. I think you've talked to me about the malingering one and I was interested, but I definitely, now that I'm on break, I, I definitely want to, well, I'll, I'll email I you want. the code. I'll email you the code so that it's free. Oh, oh thanks. Yeah. 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 Okay. No problem. <laughs> um, yeah. So everyone listening, um, whether you're interested in forensics or not, I think you talk a lot about just like we were talking about earlier, like misdiagnosis, like just issues with social media as well. So definitely go check her out, whether whether you like forensics or not, I think she's a great resource to have. I appreciate it so much, Morgan. You're awesome. Thank you. Um, and another question, or I guess the last question I always ask my guests, um, if you had to provide like one recommendation, probably in this case, maybe about forensics or something that people should take away from this show, what do you think you would say to them? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Um, I think my one message is that 
mental health is much more complicated and much more gray area than how it's perceived on social media. Um, be wary of where you get your information from. Uh, things are not black and white. Things are very gray. Humans are very gray. And if you can, whatever accounts you follow on social media, and this is particularly in, in regards to mental health, check where you're getting your information from. Is the person educated? Are they licensed? Are they credentialed? That is public information. So, you know, um, yeah, be wary where you're getting your information from and please don't ever self-diagnose. That's a good one. Both of those are good. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for being on. I feel like we could just talk nonstop about yes. anything psych related, but definitely forensics. But yeah, I appreciate you so much for being on here. It was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Yeah. Um, and thank you, everyone, as always, for joining and listening. And if you have any questions about the show, let us know. Um, all of her contact information, the stuff that she just shared will be in the episode notes so if it's easiest for you to look there um go check that out um you guys are obviously listening to the show so you know where you can find me spotify google apple podcast um check out my uh email check out my business on instagram i feel like there's so many places to find me um but it's at holistic underscore healing lc so um thank you so much again for being on it was great to have you thank you for having me all right. Uh, thank you all. Talk to you soon. Bye. And oh my God, that was.